Welcome to the Quality Meet Scotland podcast. Industry updates and best practice to promote, support, develop and protect the Scottish red meat sector. Hello and thank you very much for choosing to listen to this QMS podcast. I'm Mark Stephen. Nigh on 40 years ago, I used to work on a dairy farm, Bear Hill, just outside Glasgow. And one day I helped the farmer, Andrew, with a difficult calving. Now, we got the calf out, but sadly it was dead. Now, I've seen a lot of dead animals in my lifetime. They're not that unusual in farming, but for some reason, I can still visualise that one animal lying on the frosty ground. It was a bull calf, but it was a bonny thing. Andrew asked me to take it out of the yard and round the back in case somebody drove up the drive. It was really the first time I realised that neonatal mortality has got more than one cost. There's the obvious one to farmers, the financial cost. There's a social cost too, though. I mean, he didn't want an outsider to see it. He knew it looked bad. And then there was the emotional cost. Now, frankly, nobody would have pegged Andrew as the sensitive type. He was permanently in a bad mood. But he was obviously upset at losing that calf. And for all I know, with every other calf he lost. Why am I telling you this story? Well, neonatal mortality is just another aspect of animal health. It's kind of the flip side of the coin. And recent research suggests that we could be doing better than we currently are. Dr Alexander Corbishley is a farm animal vet currently working as a senior lecturer in farm animal practice at the University of Edinburgh. Alex's main research interests include clinical veterinary medicine, antibiotic use and resistance, metabolic status and immunology, but he's also been looking into neonatal survival rates on beef and sheep farms and he joins me now. Good morning, Alex. How are you? Good morning, Mark. I'm good. Good stuff. Good stuff. Thanks very much for taking the time to do this. Not a problem at all. It's an important subject and it's good to be able to go into some of the details of the work we've been doing recently. Just talk me through the Neonatal Survival Project. What was it? What was the, what was the purpose of it? So the project was really in response to a call from the three GB levy boards, so QMS, HCC and HDB, who had realised that we, we need to invest in this area. It's an area where we'd like to make progress as an industry. And we put forward a project to look at the current state of play with neonatal mortality, or actually we wanted to reframe the discussion a bit to talk about neonatal survival, to focus on some of the positive aspects of of that story. And we put forward a project to say, well, can we build a structured plan to try and improve survival across the industry? And can we look at some of the factors that maybe explain why survival is better on some farms versus others? And look at how we can get messages out to try and improve survival uh, across the industry as a whole. I think the starting point for this project was really a recognition that even though the scientists have done a huge amount of work understanding the biology of survival, As an industry, we haven't made the progress we would want to have made over the past few decades. And what are the barriers to that? Why hasn't that changed? And what are the solutions to potentially moving us forward over the next 10 or 20 years so that hopefully we're not having the same conversation, uh, you know, into the 2040s and 2050s? And what did you find? I mean, why are there sometimes quite large differences between one farm and the farm next door? It was quite an interesting uh, set of messages we saw from this project. So we split the project up to work with some social scientists, as well as to look at some of the biological drivers and to work directly with vets and farmers themselves as well. And for me, one of the really interesting components of the findings that we had was from the social sciences work. I'm not a social scientist myself, but having had the opportunity to work with them and see how they opened that dialogue with vets and farmers and how they unpicked what was going on, 
was for me the most interesting uh, set of results. And the thing that they really picked out was whilst we're all sort of aware that neonatal mortality is important, there are some big barriers to talking about it. And some of those are quite uncomfortable emotional barriers, which you referred to in, in your sort of opening gambit b- before the interview. And we've never really looked at that. We've never really explored that, uh, particularly vets haven't really necessarily explored and acknowledged that. And those conversations have really led us to thinking about how we open that dialogue, how we have that conversation about improving survival on a farm. And the key message really for for vets and advisors from this was that when we spoke to farmers and when the social scientists did some really in-depth interviews, it became apparent that people want to work on survival because it's the right thing to do, because it's important to them. It's inherently important to them. So whilst we acknowledge that there's an economic cost to losing lambs and calves, uh, whilst we acknowledge the welfare components uh, that, that we need to pay attention to, there's this inherent intrinsic desire to do the job well and to do it because it's the right thing to do not because the vets told them to do it not because what somebody else might think of them and that changes the dialogue that changes how you approach things you're working with someone who already wants to do the right thing you're you're working in an industry where people are doing this because it's important they recognize that so what is it we need to explore at an individual farm level to be able to unpick the barriers to improving survival. And I think that's the other really key thing that came out of this project is that there is no five point industry plan that we can apply to all farms that's going to result in improvements. I'll give you an example of lameness in sheep, for example. There is an industry five point plan for lameness in sheep. It is very effective. Why is it effective? Well. Simplistically, it's because it's there to target foot rot in sheep. So it's one disease, five-point plan. We can hugely reduce lameness in sheep with that five-point plan. Neonatal survival is completely different. Neonatal survival requires a tailored and detailed conversation with each individual farm to unpick the factors that are actually having an impact on survival on that farm, to understand what is feasible, what's realistic, what can be achieved on that farm in the next year, two years, five years to improve survival, and then agreeing with the whole team how that's going to be implemented. And that's very different to turning up with a five-point plan you know, that's printed on a, on a pre-prepared piece of paper that can go out to every farm in the country. See, that must be quite a difficult conversation, Alex, because I mean, thinking back to that incident with Andrew Harvey, this might have been my imagination, but I was looking at him. He wasn't standing there saying, oh, this animal has died. There was an element of self-blame. You could see him questioning whether there was something he could have done that could have improved that outcome. Very much so. And this really came out of those interviews with the social scientists where they found a lot of stop people actually having what they described as a verbal autopsy. What could I have done differently? What could I have changed? There was another interesting component to that dialogue, and that was this concept of acceptable losses. So some losses, I couldn't have stopped that. It was an accident. It was one of those things out with my control versus, for want of a better word, the unacceptable losses, which have a much bigger impact on you and and something that you dwell on a lot more. And having that conversation is difficult because in some instances, people will blame themselves. And therefore, it does require 
looking at this at a sort of a team level and having a discussion across everybody on the farm that's responsible for caring for and looking after animals around the time of lambing and calving. So I guess what we wanted to do with this project is we wanted to take the findings from those conversations. We wanted to take what we knew from the science and from the biology and capture that into a structured way of, of having these dialogues and being sensitive to the fact that this is a difficult subject to talk about. And that's what we came up with when we looked at the target survival plan to improve survival on farms for both suckler calves and for lambs. And it was key for us to stop talking about mortality. Talking about mortality, managing mortality, that, it, it, it's a negative connotation. In some ways, it's managing failure. How can we talk about survival? How can we talk about maximizing success? Can we change the parameters of that discussion to be more positive and to facilitate a focus on really what we want to see and that's lots of you know happy lambs and, and calves in the field and and at the end of the season at weaning time as well i'm intrigued by the idea that on each farm there's there's a different what you might describe as tolerance to mortality you know and i would imagine that probably changes from year to year too even within the farm if, if you look at the social sciences in human terms you know you can quite clearly see that there are health inequalities in the human world presumably that's reflected in the animal world too so it's interesting you've flagged that up mark because health inequalities haven't been looked into a lot in the animal world uh, as you point out it's a huge area of research in the human field but in the veterinary field uh, it's really not something that's been explored and that was something that the social scientists picked up on and when they're talking about health inequalities, they're not just talking about money per se, they're talking about education or access to veterinary services. They're talking about the social context as well. And that idea of sort of different levels of tolerance or different acceptance of levels of loss did come through quite strongly with some farms saying, you know, our target for survival is 100%. Now they know they can't get to 100%. But for them, setting an unachievable target pushes them to aspire to get as close to that unachievable target as they can. But that's not healthy or appropriate for everybody. You know, if, if you're a long way away from that or if not hitting your target, uh, it's going to have a big impact on how you perceive and, and how you sort of feel about your stock and, and your business. Then it's more appropriate to set something that, that is achievable. And what we found in this work was that setting an industry target that again should apply to all farms was not well received it didn't reflect the complexity of the individual farm it didn't reflect the differences you might see from year to year it didn't reflect what they might be trying to achieve with their business um, and, and with the type of stock that they have and therefore we've realized that what you need is to sit down with that individual farm and you need to say right where do you want to be we can show you the distribution we can show you the range of survival between different farms and where do you want to be on that range where do you want to start you may not know where you are on that range so the first step might be let's spend the next year getting the data we need so that you can place yourself on that on that range and who is sitting down with a farmer to have this discussion in this project it was the vets so we sat down um, we we had a couple of practices that participated in this and a couple of champions within those practices that really wanted to trial this and we did it on about 45 farms in total clustered down the south of England and in southern Scotland and it was the vet sitting down and, and going through this structured conversation 
And the thing that came out of that is you can't turn up with a preconceived target of where that farm should be. You need to have a dialogue with the whole team and say, right, where do you think you want to sit performance-wise? Um, you, know, you can sit down and show them what the what the range of performance is. And that's a great starting point because you can say, right, let's see if we can achieve that this year. And then we can review that next year and see whether there's scope to move forward. And in some ways, it's about distilling it into things that we can tangibly appreciate. Can we get you an extra calf this year? Well, if we can get you an extra calf, then we've started to make some progress on this. You know, that's 500 pounds. You know, that's that's going to pay for the investment you've made in this. Can we now save you two calves next year? Or can we save you 10 lambs? Can we break it down into things that are tangible and achievable and try and make progress year on year rather than turning up with a target that has been plucked out of an industry level overview? Can we really tailor it to make it specific to what that farm wants to achieve and what that farm can achieve in that period of time. I'm finding these conversations, these podcasts about animal health really interesting, but time after time, we come back to this business about trust. The vet that's sitting in your kitchen as a farmer, you have to trust them. They have to trust you. You know, There has to be some sort of understanding and dialogue, almost a friendship there in the first place. Not always easy to achieve. Absolutely. And, and, Part of our approach with this project was to put the farm team in the centre of it. So we understand that there's lots of biology that determines whether a lamb or a calf survives. But that biology doesn't really matter if the team isn't there. So the the centre of this approach is the team. And we see the vet and the advisors as central to that team. And again, part of this dialogue, building that trust, building those relationships, is making sure everybody in the team is present in that dialogue. There's no point in just having the herd owner there or the flock owner there if they're not the person that has to do these things at three o'clock in the morning. So having everybody there together, building that relationship and agreeing as a partnership what's achievable going forward is really key. And part of that is not turning up with pre-printed protocols. Part of that is sitting down and saying, right, here's a pen and paper. What would you like to do to solve this problem? And the vet can facilitate that discussion because the vet's going to know what's going to make a difference and what isn't going to make a difference. The vet's going to be able to guide that to say, well, that idea, I think is going to make a big difference to lamb or calf survival. I think this, we maybe need to refine it a bit, or you might not be investing your time and effort in the best way. And there's a really good example of this that came out of this project. And we asked in a survey, a number of questions around practices at calving and lambing time. And one of them was around the amount of colostrum that you feed and the suckler calf guys responded on average to say they were giving maybe one or two liters of colostrum to their calves now as vets we know that's not enough colostrum and we've done some work with a phd student it's actually shown that calves that get uh, supplemented with colostrum still don't have enough antibodies in their blood so it's an example of where people are investing time money effort two or three o'clock in the morning and they're not getting the animals back to where they could have been so that's a good example of where that's kind of a dialogue that sort of discussion as a team can identify areas where there is already effort being put in but with relatively small changes we could see a much bigger impact in terms of survival just before we move on what is the correct amount of colostrum to give them so we would typically say four liters it's 10% of body weight as soon after birth as possible. So if you've got particularly small or large calves, then you'd want to tweak that. But four litres is a 
is a good starting point. Let me take you back a bit. You, you spoke earlier about barriers to survival. What are those barriers to survival? I guess what I really meant was barriers to change. So you know, we understand the biology of survival. So we know that you know, lambs often die of exposure or they may die of predation, or we know about watery mouth and we know about colostrum. So we know about the biological drivers, but what are the barriers to addressing those? And in the dialogue and discussion, uh, particularly through those discussions with the social scientists, a lot of the barriers were often external. So things like the weather or facilities, but other things were a little bit more manageable. So things like time or not having had the training or not having the confidence to do things. And those can be difficult things to unpick. And there was one case study, um, it's actually an English case study, but there was one example where this farm were losing a lot of calves due to diarrhea, a scour. And the vet sort of wanted to unpick this a little bit. And it was only when they got well into the conversation that they realized that no one had ever taught the team how to stomach tube a calf with electrolytes, so with rehydration fluids. And for that reason, they weren't doing it. And the calves were dying of dehydration because no one had had taken the time to really explore whether the training was in place. And, and the guys that were not confident doing were not confident saying that they weren't comfortable doing that. And it's only when you actually sit down and have these conversations that you can disclose that. And, and actually that farm as a case study went from losing 10, 11 calves to diarrhea one year to no calves the following year. Um, and it's not that the diarrhea levels were dramatically reduced, but the treatment and therefore the survival of those animals did improve. It sounds like a fascinating piece of research. I mean, can, can people, you know, obviously it was, it was predicated upon it being practical, you know, of, of producing more live animals, that kind of thing. Can people avail themselves of this now? You know, if, if, I, if I'm a farmer up in Wick or something like that, how would I get access to this? Talk to your vets. We've run some training already this year for vets, both in England, Scotland and Wales. Uh, it was really well received. It was really well attended by the vets that came along. We're very keen to run more training. So have a chat with your vets. Those that have maybe already come to training, they've got all the literature, they've got all the findings from this study and it's ready to go. They have the tools they need to, to have these conversations. If your vets haven't yet done that, we'd be very happy to talk to them directly and we will be planning to run more training so that more vets are able to run this at a national level. You said earlier that you know there's a five-point plan for things like lameness and sheep. But it's not possible to create a five-point plan for this, you know, for neonatal survival. But I, mean, I, I, I could imagine almost like a sort of a checklist with, you know, here's maybe 10, 15, 20 things that, you know, you might profitably look at. Does such a thing exist? Well, the plan that we've produced, Mark, actually has 60 different things you could look at. Okay. <laughs> but it's not desirable and it's not, practical to try and do all those 60 things and some of those things are not appropriate for your farm if you lamb indoors then predator control isn't really a, a sort of a major area of focus for you for example exposure and hypothermia is going to be less of a problem for you if you're lambing indoors so those 60 things that that we've sort of looked at that improve survival it's not practical it's not achievable to try and do all of those on one farm and to be frank it's not appropriate for all those farms what we're looking for is we're looking for a dialogue where you can agree one, two, up to five things that you could do. And there's no point in agreeing 10 things if you don't do any of them. 
it's much better to agree to things that you can do. And that's the key here. That's where I think a lot of the barriers have sat is that there's a lot of things you could do, but which are the ones that are going to make a difference to you? And which are the ones that you and your team can implement? And having that dialogue with your vet and going through that process is a way that we've shown that it can be achieved. I'm maybe being overly simplistic here, but it seems to me that what, what you've done with this review is gone from a negative saying, you know, let's let's look at you know neonatal mortality, you know, which which everyone feels is a failure, to a positive by saying, no, 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 let's look at neonatal survival. And just in that one action, you've you've shifted the focus and it's almost like getting a fresh pair of eyes on the farm. That's what we hope. None of us like talking about mortality. None of us like seeing a dead animal. If we can focus on survival, we achieve the same thing, but we do it with a much more positive take on the subject. Worth doing. Absolutely worth doing. Alex Corbishley, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mark. We will be back with another QMS podcast soon. Uh, I hope you found this one useful and interesting. Until the next time, I'm Mark Stephen. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Quality Meat Scotland podcast. For news and to listen back to previous episodes of the podcast, visit qmscotland.co.uk. For Scotch beef, Scotch lamb and specially selected pork recipe videos and inspiration, visit www.scotchkitchen.com or follow Scotch Kitchen on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.